What is the highest technique you hope to achieve? We have no technique. Very good. What are your thoughts when facing an opponent? There is no Greetings, friends. I'm Arnold Schroeder, and this is Fight Like an Animal. Find episode bibliographies and other texts at againsttheinternet.com. And if you want to support this work materially, please check out patreon.com slash biological singularity. Let me try your snake fist then. Okay, I'm just going to dive right into it, right? Last time... We were talking about the biology of developmental plasticity and, uh, you know, how it's reasserting itself in uh, biology, you know, in like the academic scientific discipline of biology after a long uh, Cold War ideological battle-induced absence of many, many decades um, and how it describes organisms that transcend the nature-nurture dialogue, which has so frequently characterized, you know, some form of the thinking of which seems to be present in all of the political tendencies, the major, you know, political tendencies, authoritarianism, liberalism, and uh, the various modes of egalitarian political thought, um, and, you know, the, the type of thinking that has just plagued any attempt to reconcile various programs of social transformation with an understanding of biology, or indeed not just reconcile, but, you know, incorporate biology into a program of social transformation. Um, you know, how the, the biology of developmental uh, or phenotypic plasticity really seems to actually strongly assert that uh, social transformation is indeed possible, or at least that there's no a priori reason to assume that it's not, right? That uh, what the, the range of possibilities uh, for our species to uh, inhabit is, uh, you know, uh, should be assumed to be like far greater than anything that we've thus far encountered, and that there's no particularly great reason to assume that whatever one's uh, social political objectives are, they're somehow incompatible with human biology itself. And that, that could mean both good or bad things, right? You know, that, that both many, many uh, horrors are certainly utterly commensurate with uh, human biology, but as are many, you know, social trajectories which we would endorse or uh, work, work to further. And so hopefully, you know, hopefully I was somewhat convincing in um, at least establishing a tentative framework for that, you know, for that notion to seem true. And if you found yourself thinking that's all great, but, you know, it really makes me wonder if Sasquatch is real. <laughs> now I'm going to hopefully definitively demonstrate that, yes, Sasquatch is real. Um, and more to the point, I'm going to, um, well, I don't know, it's, you know, in terms of its like salience to what we've already been discussing, I'm just going to use this as an example of like the extent to which radically different outcomes are possible, um, that the human genome is, po is capable of generating radically different, um, you know, outcomes. Um, so I, like just to be clear about this, because I feel like one could perhaps be bracing themselves for some profound disappointment right about now. 
I'm just gonna go ahead and say, like, I never. It's it's not as if what I'm I'm about to reveal that I've been a lifelong avid believer. It's like or disbeliever or like that I've had really much occasion to think about Sasquatch one way or the other. Uh, I um, probably if you had asked me at any point up until very, very, very recently, I would have said it kind of seemed like an invitation to epistemic humility. Um, I'm a little bit bothered by um, just like sort of the extent of the accounts by how many people seem to like feel the need to tell these very similar stories about encounters um and, and you know and how much uh how much it like starts to register as a little bit odd if you uh if you do just like dig into like the sheer volume of the of the stories that people have about this stuff um and uh, you know i just like haven't really thought about it much in my life like i said i, I can distinctly recall being 11 years old and after having checked out all the books at the local library in the small, uh, you know, like Northern California town that I lived in at the time uh, on secret codes being like, I guess it's time to check out every cryptozoology book. And, uh, you know, not really forming much of an opinion being like, could be real, could not be real. And I can remember um, in my early 20s when, you know, I was doing a lot of, uh, doing National Forest Timber Sale Appeals, very much wrapped up in the biology of imperiled species, which is to say uh, the biology of species that exist kind of like right at or oftentimes below thresholds of detection where they're, you know, at population densities where scientists just often aren't sure if they're in a landscape. I can remember that it did occur to me at least once, I think in particular when a species that was thought to have been extinct for like 70 years suddenly reappeared. That, you know, the, the fact that we don't see something is actually not as great of evidence that it's not there as, uh, as we might be tempted to just sort of assume out of hand. Um, and, you know, applying that to, to, uh, like the Sasquatch, uh, you know, accounts of Sasquatch encounters. Um, and then, the one thing that I would say, you know, there's, there's like a pretty significant group of people who, uh, you know, are, are avid partisans on this issue because they've had some experience that utterly, utterly transformed them. And so it turns out, I, I didn't know that I kind of was one of those people. Um, but it is true. You know, I, I, w I will go ahead and say that I like, I probably wouldn't have stumbled across this material if the following wasn't true. That in the mid 2000s, I think 2004, I spent a lot of time, I think, you know, like four or five, six months, um, at this house in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And um, it was a pretty, pretty like isolated location. I was there with uh, one other person consistently. Um, and, you know, sometimes any number of other people were like visiting us. And boy, did we hear some weird noises, like night after night after night. Specifically, we heard like sort of like crashing, like percussive sounds. Um, we heard sort of like howling, like, like these wild, like yells and howls and whoops. And then sometimes we heard just kind of like insane gibberish that sounded like anything from like imitations of machine noises to kind of like, uh, weird, like stylized imitations of language, but where you couldn't really make out any actual words or anything. 
I don't know how to like describe how this affected us. We other other than that, we were absolutely horrified. Other than that, you know, we spent night after night like sitting in the living room of this house, just being like, "What? What is happening? Is somebody in the forest playing bizarre sounds through a loudspeaker, like just to fuck with us in this house?" You know, like like just like truly, and and just like feeling this kind of dread, this very particular kind of dread that I had never felt before, uh, nor have ever felt since. Um, and yeah, like, uh, hmm, I don't know, just something about those sounds affected some aspect of my being in a way that nothing else ever had. And it's something that, you know, honestly, like when you have experiences that are just like so radically lacking um, any point of connection with your existing frames of reference, it's pretty fucking easy to just compartmentalize them and kind of move on. To a large extent, that's what happened. But, you know, I definitely would think about it sometimes and just be like, what was that? And, you know, if somebody were to ask me, have you ever had an experience that felt kind of like a, you know, like a supernatural encounter? Like, have you ever been somewhere where you were just like inexplicably like, or or like somewhat explicably, but like, have you ever been somewhere where you were just like, terrified in this way that you would sort of associate with like a fear that you know is of like something more than just like confronting death or something which I've done plenty of and it, it, this felt different you know I would have referred I would have referred to those nights in that house in the Santa Cruz mountains so then I had a kidney transplant uh, seven months ago or so now, and so I had occasion to just sort of like consume a lot of media that I otherwise never would have gotten around to. And um, at some point I watched something, or uh, yeah, um, and I heard these recordings that are just called the Sierra Sounds. I'll play a little bit of it now. So yeah, you know, we heard these percussive sounds. We heard like wild whooping sounds, like howls and yells. bizarre gibberish that sort of sounded like imitations of human language but didn't really sound like a human making those imitations of human language okay so after i you know after i listened to these i got pretty like you know i will be honest right like i'm i guess like i almost started like this description to to like provide a disclaimer of like i'm not really that interested in the subject on its own intrinsic terms but like honestly when i heard these recordings i i cried you know i was like oh my god that's what we were hearing and um and you know so i found out that people associate these sounds with sasquatch that the, the percussive sounds are supposed to be banging on trees which is something that people report over and over again it's being characteristic that the whooping and yelling is like supposedly a really common thing. Um, and yeah, and that so is just like making a lot of weird gibberish, you know, language-esque noise that does, you know. So a- anyway, um, so I, I consumed more media about this. I decided at some point that I wanted to read a book about Sasquatch. And um, because I'm, you know, not 
looking for like, uh, you know, meaningless sensationalism or whatever, I, I thought if there's a book by a decent scientist about this, that's what I'm going to read. And it turned out that Brian Sykes, who is the author, his by far his best known work, he's a geneticist, and by far his best known work is The Seven Daughters of Eve. He worked on, uh, you know, the, the kind of like mitochondrial DNA counterpart to, there's like the, that book, The Journey of Man, which describes, uh, why chromosome data on populations around the world describes the interrelationships between populations based on, you know, like the steady rates of mutation. So we can see like at what point populations diverge and reconstruct a sort of like scenario of the peopling of the globe based on that, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, so we we you know get estimates in conjunction of course with like archaeological evidence and whatever else that like place australians as the first migrants out of africa you know say that like asian pe people in asia and people in europe diverged like 40,000 years ago and like you know like all that good stuff um and so sykes kind of did the mitochondrial dna counterpart to that which is you know, interesting because uh, male and female population movements aren't always the same thing, right? Like sometimes whole populations go a place, but uh, sometimes, and these, you know, do particularly seem to be associated with contexts of like warfare and, you know, subjugation and whatnot. Like if, if just a bunch of men show up, if there's like a sudden infusion of just Y chromosome uh, DNA, you know, into a population, it usually reflects a historical period of time that wasn't a whole lot of fun, right? Um, so yeah, so, uh, Sykes, who wrote The Seven Daughters of Eve, wrote this book called The Nature of the Beast, the first scientific evidence of ape men, or the survival of ape men into modern times. And so, yeah, I am not going to, uh, try to convince you, if you were perhaps bracing yourself for me attempting to, uh, convince you to adopt a different epistemology with, re you know, in relation to, uh, you know, grainy photographs of something or other and, you know, breathless eyewitness accounts of something or other, uh, you know, don't worry about that. I'm not going to do that. The, the sole evidence that I'm going to uh, provide in favor of my argument that Sasquatch absolutely does exist and its existence has been documented for a long time is an excerpt from this book by this geneticist and a paper published on the same thing um, he's describing in this excerpt in um, the Journal of Advanced Genetics in 2021. Okay. And so, and it's, there's something extremely revealing about the psychology of both believers and skeptics that this is not a commonly discussed piece of evidence. This is not, for instance, even in the like Bigfoot Wikipedia entry, right? I, I guess I would say that in the case of the believers, maybe there is really some psychological need that the mystery is meeting, right? Maybe there's nothing that could actually happen in reality that would be quite sufficient to, uh, you know, um, sort of correspond to the uh, mystique that has been developed in people's conception of this entity. And likewise, I don't know, maybe uh, among the skeptics, there's just such a tendency to disregard anything that induces a sense of wonder as unscientific on its own terms that um, something, well, as we can, as we will see, as we read from this paper in this genetics journal, you know, um, there's a, an ability to acknowledge 
that essentially all the traits one would require of an entity to describe, you know, to classify it as Sasquatch are indeed possessed by an entity that did in fact exist, but for them to still be like essentially saying, well, and so it would appear that the reason that this entity was described as Sasquatch is merely because it possessed all the traits of a Sasquatch. Um, so yeah, so um, what we would want, what what I guess I would want, um, if if I was going to say, you know, if somebody were to ask me, like, what would it require for you to definitively conclude that yes, Sasquatch exists? Is I, I would say, well, I would want there to be an entity that uh, was, you know, I guess as much as it uh, appalls me, you know, it runs very contrary to my um, my sensibilities about how to interact with. Uh, our fellow creatures on this planet, you know, I would want an entity to have either been in captivity or, you know, for there to have been sustained interactions in the wild, but for there to be like a reliable, extensive set of observations, um, you know, if it took place in the technological age we currently inhabit with lots of like, you know, video documentary evidence of some kind if it took place before then i would at least want the convergence of a large number of eyewitnesses and um i would want this entity to have been you know human-like but like distinctly human but distinctly other than human as we think of it like a like a sort of a wild human i would want it to be like a giant human covered in hair living off wild somewhere in the mountains or something somewhere uh not using any language and hunting with its bare hands exhibiting superhuman strength like just totally outside the range of human variation I would want, in other words, exactly what we find when we encounter Zena of Abkhazia. So this is from the Sykes book, The Nature of the Beast, the chapter titled Zena. I'm going to read, I'm going to uh, rely rather ex on reading rather extensively from it. I'm just going to let his own account uh, speak for itself. The story of Zena fascinates everyone with even the most fleeting interest in the legends of the wild wood and the strange creatures, half-human, half-beast, that lurk in its shadows. It is by far the most absorbing account of the capture of an anomalous primate, an ape-man, that there has ever been. Unlike so many other stories that depend on unsubstantiated eyewitness accounts, hundreds of people saw Zena the Wild Woman in the forty or more years she was held in captivity. Even more unusually, there were physical remains to examine and, especially for me, genetic analyses that I could perform that might discover what sort of creature Zena really was. We know the details of Zena's capture thanks to the work in the early 1950s of the Russian zoologist Alexander Mashdovtsev and his young associate Boris Porshnev, who went on to become the leading figure in Russian hominology. Although Zena had died 60 years previously, Mashdovtsev and Porshnev were able to find and interview several witnesses who, as young children, had seen Zena and remembered her well. The location for Zena's story is Abkhazia, now a country devastated by war and uneasily positioned between Russia and Georgia on the southern slopes of the Caucasus Mountains. Densely wooded valleys radiate towards Russia in the north and to Abkhazia in the south from the spine of high peaks which climb to Mount Elbrus at 18,500 feet and stretch between the Black and Caspian Seas. 
Even more than most remote, remote mountainous areas, the Caucasus has an abundance of wild man legends stretching back centuries, and it was the almost permanent base for Jean-Marie Kaufman's expeditions in the 1960s and 1970s in search of the elusive Almasti. Almasti is the kind of like Russia, Russian language and maybe more broadly uh, just kind of like that region, gen, general region beyond Russia, um, their term for, you know, Sasquatch is an anglicization of an indigenous term, uh, North American indigenous term, you know, but for, for that creature, the Yeti, the Sasquatch, whatever. Uh, in the early 1850s, a traveling merchant visiting the Ochamchir region of Abkhazia on the southern slopes of the mountain range came across a young Almasti by a remote stretch of the Abziudubza River. I'm sorry if anybody actually knows how to pronounce that, my Abkhazian listeners, for instance. Um, as soon as it caught sight of him, the creature vanished into the forest. Some days later, he returned with a group of hunters and their dogs. When they saw it again, the dogs were unleashed, chased it into the forest, and brought it down. After a fierce struggle, it was eventually subdued. This is a terrible story, by the way. After a fierce struggle, it was eventually subdued, tied, gagged, and shackled to a log. It was, it was clearly a female. She was held for a while in a ditch surrounded by sharpened wooden stakes, then sold on to a succession of owners until she was eventually purchased by the Abkhaz nobleman Edgi Ganaba and taken to his farming estate at Tikna on the Mokva River. Here, she spent the rest of her life until she died around 1890. Mashdovtsev and Porshnev obtained detailed and consistent eyewitness descriptions of the creature named Zena in the 1950s. Part human, part ape with dark skin, Zena means black in Abkhaz. She was covered with long, reddish-brown hair, which formed a mane down her back. She was large, about six feet six inches tall, and extremely muscular, with exaggerated hairless buttocks and large breasts. Her face was wide with high cheekbones and a broad nose. Brilliant white teeth flashed from her white mouth. Teeth which could crush nuts and even bones. Her strength was such that she could lift a 50-kilogram sack of flour with one hand and hold it steady for several minutes. At first, Zena was kept in a stone-walled enclosure near Ganaba's house, and her food was simply thrown over the wall. She dug a hole in the ground within the enclosure where she slept. Zena was a source of cruel amusement for local children, including some of the eyewitnesses later interviewed by Mashdovtsev and Porshnev. The children used to torment Zena by prodding her with sticks through a gap in the wall or pelting her with small stones. Despite these provocations, Zena became gradually less aggressive as the years passed. She was moved from her stone prison to an enclosure close to Ganaba's house before finally being set free to roam the estate. Zena hated being indoors, preferring to sleep in the open air, often lying down with the estate's water buffalo in a stagnant pool. She never wore any clothes, and even in the depth of winter spent all day and night completely naked, never attempting to cover herself against the cold. Zena enjoyed swimming in the Mokva River, even when it was in full flood, and showed her athleticism by racing Ganaba's horses. She never tried to escape and began to do menial tasks for Ganaba, including grinding corn in his watermill. Though apparently not fully human, she became his slave. 
One aspect of the eyewitness descriptions that I find most remarkable is that Xana never tried to speak. Though she had a repertoire of inarticulate grunts, whistles, and cries, she never managed to learn a single word in Abkhaz or attempt to speak in her own language, whatever that might have been. In many ways, Xena's is a classic tale of a wild creature, part human, part animal, captured and tamed. And so it would have remained a story, and we would have known nothing more about Xena. What had kept the story alive is that she had at least four children with local men. The circumstances are unclear, but there are tales of drunken orgies and curious men being granted access to her in exchange for money. <laughs> Okay, so that's all pretty wild in and of itself, but the intrigues intensify. So, um, because Xana had offspring, uh, in 1971, one of these Russian scientists who was, uh, you know, like, in Russia, there was much more of a sort of like respect, it was considered a much more respectable, uh, subject of scientific inquiry to look into all these very persistent accounts of, uh, of, you know, these creatures, right? And, you know, especially the Caucasus Mountains is kind of their Pacific Northwest. There's a particular concentration of these stories there. Um, and so, you know, like one of those Russian scientists who had spent, you know, all this time uh, investigating these accounts um, actually managed to dig up the grave of, uh, couldn't find Zena's remains, but managed to dig up, uh, dig up the grave of Quit, one of Zena's sons. And, um, Sykes, the author of The Nature of the Beast, was able to access Quit's skull. And he, he, uh, did a bunch of measurements. He did like a, a multidimensional, um, assessment of just the skull's morphology and, uh, Describes it as outside the range of normal human variation. You know, in particular, it's just real fucking big. Uh, but he also actually managed to extract Sykes's, you know, like epic with, uh, with, uh, you know, extracting and purifying ancient DNA or, or, you know, in this case, it's not particularly ancient, but just DNA that has been preserved under very suboptimal conditions. And so he managed to get some of Quit's DNA. And, uh, half of Quit's DNA, as one would expect, is like characteristic of people living in the Caucasus, right? But, uh, half of Quit's DNA is sub-Saharan African. And so this left, left open this intriguing possibility. Um, you know, uh, the, the seven mitochondrial DNA, uh, clans that, uh, that Sykes first describes in um, the uh, the Seven Daughters of Eve have kind of like different you know different dates of divergence from other populations, and this one is is an ancient one. It's a uh, one hundred fifty thousand years old, right? And so what Sykes uh, speculated, and this and this speculation was as far as he could go in his book at the time of, of the writing, um, they just didn't have any more information to work with. But, you know, he speculated that Zena could have been the descendant of um, a population that diverged from the rest of humanity 150,000 or more years ago um, and that migrated out of Africa any time 
thereafter, right? And so, you know, we, so we, <laughs> you know, conceivably could have taken a very, very different route. Um, and one that we have to assume that 150,000 years ago, a bunch of the behavioral features of, uh, of modern humanity uh, were already in place. But, you know, this is a time, I mean, like, you know, certainly, for instance, we know that humans were using uh, tools that we, uh, we just don't see. We've, ne we've never really seen an account um, so something that every account of Sasquatch or Bigfoot or whatever converges on is that there's no tool use, no technology at all, no fire, um, uh, no like real, uh, no engineered shelter. You know, people talk about caves and like living under trees and stuff like that, but, but no like uh, constructed shelter. So uh, yeah, you know, it's like th this population would have definitely had to have uh, lost a bunch of the characteristics that, uh, Homo sapiens already possessed at that point. But this was a time before true cognitive modernity, according to, you know, there's this distinction that's made between anatomically modern and cognitively modern humans. And this, this would be from before this kind of ostensible, I don't know, I think to some extent, uh, the degree to which this really happened, like that there was actually this fundamental change in our cognition as opposed to, say, like our cumulative culture, um, you know, it, it, like it gets debated, but, um, but there is this idea that somewhere maybe around 100,000, like between 80 and 100,000 years ago, um, humans underwent some kind of like, you know, crossed some kind of really radical cognitive threshold, like, uh, some, some very decisive shift occurred and we became whatever it is we are now, whatever the, the sort of like decisive thing you want to use to distinguish our, us from other species and from our own species before that point. I, I don't know. But anyway, anyway, um, the, the Sykes was able to speculate that this, you know, Zena could have been a descendant of like a very ancient divergence from the rest of the human population uh, that, you know, just took a very different path and lost some features that, um, that uh, hum humans possess. But, you know, it's, it's like not impossible to imagine. So, for instance, uh, you know, there, there's no like one of the true cross-cultural human universals is the use of fire. Um, as described in books like Donald Brown's Human Universals, but uh, the the knowledge of how to make fire is not a true uh, cross-cultural universal. Like uh, places like Tasmania, um, some cultures in South America, granting that they were more like cultures that had experienced pretty significant, uh, fairly recent upheavals. Uh, you know, but like we could see if you for like lost the lost the knowledge of how to make fire someday <laughs> under some set of circumstances it's not hard to imagine that the fire goes out you know um so so anyway um that's that's the speculation that uh that Sykes made and that was kind of as far as he could get until in 2021 
a team, uh, Margarian et al. in Advanced Genetics published the genomic origin of Zena of Abkhazia because, yes, my friends, there was an unmarked grave containing a female human in, um, in the estate of this, what was it, Ganaba, whatever this dude's name was, um, where Zena was held captive. And, um, yeah, Ganaba, and, um, they, uh, they ex- they exhumed the, uh, the remains and they tested the mitochondrial DNA with, uh, in comparison to that of quits, and because mitochondrial DNA is inherited exclusively from the mother, right, it's not the nuclear DNA sequence, it's the DNA sequence in the mitochondria, in, in, you know, in our cells outside of the nucleus that, um, powers our cells, does, does the work of converting, um, converting, uh, materials into energy, um, for, for metabolism, um, uh, you know, so it's something we, was, that's exclusively present in the egg, like in the, in the cell, um, when it's fertilized by the sperm, and there was a hundred percent match. So, uh, this, this was Quit's mother, i.e. this was Zena. So what they say about Zena is really interesting. Um, and, and first of all, let's, you know, um, so, so they go over some of the same, um, you know, some of the same stuff that I've already described, although they add a few significant details. They say, inspired by the speculation that she might have been a female Yeti, Soviet scientists visited the region in 1962 to gather descriptions and accounts from the elders living in the village of Tekina, who still recalled her. The locals described her as being part human and part animal, two meters tall and dark-skinned, covered with thick hair, who was able to lift a 50-kilogram sack of flour with one hand and outrun a horse in a race. Okay, she didn't just race horses, she won those races with horses. According to the eyewitness accounts, she also lacked speech, which along with her alleged strange behavior and appearance, likely resulted in her reputation as an almasti. See, this is interesting. This is where it gets into this, this, uh, you know, this way that they conceptualize this, which is, you know, them literally saying, well, because she had the traits of Yeti, people thought she must have been a Yeti or something, right? Um, and so they talk about, uh, you know, establishing that she is in fact Quit's mother and, um, they, uh, they, you know, establish definitively that she does not have archaic DNA of any kind, that, uh, she is of recent anatomically modern African origin. The time of her, you know, she comes from a population that diverges from other human populations recently. Um, and so she's just like firmly within, um, she's a uh, 66% East African, um, and, uh, 36%, um, or rather 33%, um, is unknown, but may very well be West African, which is a little weird, but, um, you know, they, they, they felt ambiguous about those results for some reason or another, but it does look like some of, some of her lineage was West African. Um, but yeah, she is a modern homo, genetically, she is a modern homo sapiens. So what they say about this is, the contemporary reports and subsequent tales of Zena's wildness, 
were at least partially based on some of her unusual physical characteristics, such as the lack of speech, intellectual disability, and long hair covering her whole body, to name a few, with the genomic data clearly rejecting all non-human hypotheses. We speculate that if these descriptions of her physical characteristics are accurate, she may have had a rare human genetic disorder such as congenital generalized hypertrichosis, a syndrome with dysmorphic facial features, intellectual disability, and, you know, hypertrichosis. Um, and so they, they talk about because, uh, you know, she's, they say Zana is likely of Eastern African descent, although they can't rule out a partial West African ancestry. And they hypothesize that her lineage could have arrived in the territory of present-day Abkhazia um, as a result of the slave trade that was practiced um, between the 16th and the 19th centuries by the Ottoman Empire, right? So the Ottoman Empire was in that region of the Southern Caucasus, and there were slaves from East Africa there at that time. Um, you know, and so <laughs> they, they conclude. Lastly, we speculate that it was simply her unfamiliar individual physical characteristics, such as unusual behavior, physical strength, tall stature, lack of recognizable speech, and hypertrichosis, and the subsequent rumors over generations that fueled the myth of a non-human origin. So I, I don't know what to say about this. This is like... Uh, again, like if you asked me what I would want out of some entity in order to conclude that Sasquatch is real, I would very specifically want, you know, something that eyewitness accounts uh, reiterate over and over again is this like this confusion is expressed where people are like, it was so human and yet so animal, so not human as we know it, you know, um, and, and so if, if something was human and yet very distinctly other than as humans are, that, that would, that would work out just fucking great for me as far as concluding that something is Sasquatch. You know, again, what, what I would need is like a reliable account of some like, you know, it's like people will very, very frequently, you know, refer to them as like wild men, wild women. You know, it's like, it's like they're like a, a kind of human creature but like a wild form of humanity and uh that, that that just like that checks out for me like it's never been the case for me that if if uh, what i would say if somebody asked me what i need from an entity in order to conclude that sasquatch is a thing is you know is from i would never have said oh i need the entity not to be genetically human not at all in fact that really actually brings up a very intriguing framework for thinking about what Sasquatch may in fact be, right? Especially if one considers that, as we have discussed at great length on this podcast, what we think of when we say human, what we mean when we say human, and we are talking about the humans that comprise the cultures that are examined in a book like Donald Brown's Human Universals, um, you know, wherein everything that can be uh, said to characterize all of humans is described, right? You know, like what we are talking about when we are talking about those kind of humans is we're talking about a kind of human that has undergone a process of developmental delay in order to acquire both our morphological characteristics, like our facial structures and our lack of hair, 
but also our cognitive characteristics, right? Our like um, our hypersociality and our unique propensity for social cognition, for understanding one another and for communicating with one another. Um, and, uh, you know, this process of developmental delay is called self-domestication because it is the same biology that characterizes, uh, you know, domestic animals. So if one were to ask what creatures who are described as being like distinctly like humans and yet distinctly unlike humans, like a sort of a wild form of humanity, you know, if one were to think about what that might be, one could do a lot worse than to speculate that these creatures are indeed humans and they are just the non-developmentally delayed, non-neotinous, non-self-domesticated form of humanity, i.e. the wild form of humanity. And yeah, you know, this, uh, this ability for the authors of this paper to kind of describe these characteristics and say, you know, like, so obviously, you know, people just, it, I think it's highly illustrative of like, uh, this kind of frame of this um, mental framework that I've described in other episodes, for instance, myth science power, when I've said that what we often mean when we say science in the culture we inhabit today is something more than the definition that we would give. You know, if, if we were asked to provide a definition of science, uh, we might say something like it's, oh, you know, it's like methodologically rigorous inquiry into empirically validated phenomena, right? But there's something that happens over and over again when we're doing uh, methodologically rigorous inquiry into empirically validated phenomena where some of the results feel like science and some don't. Some kind of have this quality, you know, like certain weird aspects of physics, for instance, or, you know, it actually just like kind of comes up over and over again in all these realms where like some of the world we encounter just sort of feels like it has this kind of anti-modern or mystical quality to it, right? Like there's something that just doesn't feel like it quite accords with what we feel we're talking about when we say like the scientific worldview. It might even be fair to say that there's a certain sense of like wonder or a certain sense of the world being kind of alive or like ineptly described by machine metaphors or kind of like not quite as purposeless and, uh, yeah, and, and mechanical and dead as certain forms of scientific thought seem to want to render it, um, you know, which makes things feel kind of unscientific or something. And then likewise, there's a lot of stuff that, uh, isn't actually the result of, you know, there's a lot of like claims and theories and quote unquote findings out there that aren't the product of rigorous, like methodologically rigorous inquiry into empirically uh, validated phenomena at all that do feel like science, right? Like the entirety of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is just kind of made up, you know, as we talked about in the episode Addiction, Madness, and Despair, Part 2, Madness, uh, they just made that shit up, right? Like the guy who decided that one had to meet five out of nine criteria for major depressive disorder, um, when asked why five out of nine said it just 
sounded about right. You know, I mean, the fact that patterns of brain activity both transcend and subdivide these various categories of mental disorder, the fact that they are assumed to be congenital defects of the brain and yet they all have trauma as a statistically profoundly significant, um, you know, corollary. Uh, you know, like, the DSM is made up. But for as much as people may be willing to say, like, this is inaccurate, right? Like, this is bad science or this is, like, invalid. It doesn't, it doesn't strike that same note as, you know, quantum entanglement or, like, uh, the, the wave particle duality or something like that hits where it just kind of feels like it's somehow out of the bounds that it invokes a different kind of information processing or a different like form of awareness of the world or state of being or, or like, yeah, just like way of experiencing, um, than what we mean when we say science. Um, and I think this is one of the, this is like a good illustration of that where, you know, they, they do the genetic analysis and it's not like they get it wrong or anything, but, but they're able to say like, so obviously this just doesn't mean anything. This has been a giant misunderstanding. And look, there's just a creature out there that has human genetics and, you know, was covered in hair and could, uh, you know, swim in the Moskva, Mokva River when it was in full flood and like live outside in the Caucasus mountains throughout winter without any clothes on and out run a horse and you know somehow people just got the mistaken impression that she was like something other than you know just like a human with intellectual disabilities and a lot of hair you know like uh she she you know like like just a really bad case of hypertrichosis like by the way friends hypertrichosis is just a condition where people like have a lot of hair on their body it doesn't typically confer people the ability to outrun a fucking horse and so, yeah, yeah, this is like, this is like one of those cases where, um, so-called scientific reasoning is actually just like a, a particular type of like orientation to the world, you know, uh, one that tends to diminish our sense of wonder, to render everything in terms of machine metaphors, and to, uh, just kind of like exclude possibilities that feel a little too, amazing or remarkable or like just to invoke a certain sense that I don't know feels other than how people think they should be feeling when they're doing science um uh, yeah so um this idea that um that Zena might be um you know a representative of a different kind of human is also so you know she was captured in the 19th century the slave trade went up to the 19th century so i guess it's at least possible that she was a first generation runaway that she had escaped slavery at some point um and for reasons we'll get into in just a second, like it would be very likely that if that were true, that it, that happened when she was very, very, very young and her unique behavior and, uh, and appearance was the result of developing in very abnormal conditions. Um, but th the fact that she was so, you know, th this happens, right? There, there are cases of feral children and whatnot that are, um, that are, uh, that develop without a, much human intervention at all. And um, they're not usually in great shape, right? And so the fact that Zena was 
physically, you know, to say she was in good shape is an exercise in radical understatement. She's in better shape than anybody ever, right? Than, than, than is, than, than is accounted for in the range of human variation as we otherwise know it. Yeah. Like she's more athletic, more resilient to the cold than anybody. Um, you know, so this would kind of strongly indicate that she probably hadn't like recently escaped conditions that like characterize, you know, normal human development for the rest of us, that she was probably part of a population of other people who were like her, who were out there in the mountains. At a certain point, we have to invoke parsimony here, right? You know, the fact that there's a bunch of accounts of creatures that meet exactly her description all around the Caucasus Mountains, and that one of them gets captured in the Caucasus Mountains, and yeah, like, sure enough, turns out to be, like, perfectly capable of living in the wild and, you know, like, obviously could have, like, hunted her own food and stuff like that. I mean, you know, it just, like, it gets a little silly at a certain point to be, like, let's assume that all those accounts aren't true. It's, like, people seeing bears or something like that. And that this one time that there was a specimen captured that precisely matches these descriptions, it's just a person who was, like, a runaway slave who just happened to, you know, that doesn't, like, that's just not... That's, I mean, it's just not as scientific as saying like, yeah, you know, the eyewitness accounts of a population of these creatures is probably true. And she's probably one of them. Um, and, uh, so it, it would seem to, it would seem to suggest that, yeah, that she's part of a population, like a reproductive population out there in the mountains. But I'm going to go ahead and say, just to, just to like, you know, be as cautious as possible, that even if this is not the case, even if Zena is just a specimen, like an isolated specimen, uh, who is just like living out there in the mountains, running around, out running horses, swimming in rivers in full flood, sleeping naked, during winter, I'm still going to say that she is Sasquatch, right? I'm still going to say that even if there's never been anybody else like her ever in the entire history of the world, which just doesn't feel parsimonious either, but even if that were true, um, we can at least say that Sasquatch existed for the duration of the, the life of one individual one time, right? Like, like she just, she so meets the characteristics that I need for there to be Sasquatch that I'm, I'm just going to say, She's Sasquatch. It happened. It happened at least that one time. I think that she, I think it happened more than that, but, but it happened. Yeah. Um, but so this idea that she might represent like a non, like a, a wild form of humanity, a non self-domesticated form of our species, um, is actually, you know, not a new one. And it goes back actually at least as far as, um, the originator of the Latin based, uh, taxonomic classificatory system we use for species um, of Carlos Linnaeus. So this is from a paper called Feral and Isolated Children published in um, a psychology journal in the 80s. According to Friedman and Brown, feral man was first defined by Carlos Linnaeus in 1758 in his work on animal and plant classification, Systeme Naturae. Linnaeus used the term to differentiate between man living in society, homo sapiens, and man reared away from other men, 
homo ferris. He based this differentiation on nine specific cases, including instances of animal and isolation rearing. Linnaeus listed three characteristics of feral man, tetrapus, four-footed, mutus, without language, and hirsutus, hairy. Each of these three key characteristics is briefly described below. So they go on to talk about this, you know, this phenomena in, phenomenon in um, feral and isolated children, right? So th that would be, that would be like the key part of the hypothesis is that uh, feral and isolated children are um, definitely like a, a, a fairly well-attested reality. Um, they they kind of come in maybe three major varieties, right? There's children who were raised without social contact, but just in some hyper-abusive scenario of isolation, where they, you know, they don't have really much interaction with, um, the, like, a, a stimulus-rich environment of any kind, um, including any kind of, like, real meaningful social contact with members of their own species, but they, they don't get to like run wild in the forest or anything like that. It's like they're locked up in a basement or something somewhere, right? These are, um, you know, the, the, these are children. These are some of the worst stories one could ever hope to hear or not. I don't know. The world is full of myriad horrors, but these are bad stories. As, as, as a kid who got locked up a lot, these are stories I don't necessarily like love to uh to explore the the lurid details of any more than well i don't know i guess i've actually read a fair amount about them but um but yeah um so you know so we have we have those cases and then we have cases where children were rear uh, like just kind of raised themselves in the wild and um and in those are really interesting cases because they end up taking on a radical diversity of ecological niches right there's scenarios where people like there's an amphibious at least one amphibious boy who lived mostly off of frogs and fishes and he spent like a significant proportion of his time in water um, you know, and then there's also been cases where children kind of became like arboreal creatures, right? And they like raised themselves in the trees. Okay. And then the last category is, uh, is like animal reared children. And this has happened with an incredible range of species. And in every case, and so this says something so interesting about the, uh, you know, the phenotypic plasticity of our species. In every case, the, the child took on the behaviors and, you know, the sort of like, um, general like affects of, uh, the species that they were raised around. So there's been certainly any number of cases of children, uh, raised by wolves, at least one case of, um, a boy raised by bears, goats, cattle, multiple species of primate, you know, you name it, some kids have been raised by it. Um, and this is something that has been like widely reported since, since people started writing stuff down. Um, there, there's lots of famous cases, uh, like throughout history, it keeps happening in the, you know, in the nineties and early two thousands, there were two cases, both in Russia of, uh, children raised, uh, no, maybe not both in Russia, but of children, um, raised by dogs. Yeah. So like one was this girl who had like super abusive, neglectful, um, 
alcoholic parents. And so when she was like three years old, she climbed into a dog kennel to cuddle with these dogs for comfort. And uh, she just kind of became one of them. And, you know, so she walked around on all fours and snarled at people and barked and, you know, sniffed her food before she ate it. And uh, there was also a boy um, who uh, had a, who took up, who was raised by a pack of feral dogs. And <laughs> by the time he was captured by police, um, had actually become like the alpha male of the pack. And this is one of those, uh, a lot of these kids don't ever like, you know, end up resembling anything like a normal human. Um, he is one of those cases. I think a lot of this depends on exactly at what point in the developmental trajectory you're isolated from other humans. Um, uh, but yeah, he, he ended up actually, uh, like living a fairly normal life. Um, and you know, so that, that just must be, I, I was talking with somebody about this the other day, like, you know, when do you bring that up? Like, is that like a second date thing or whatever? Like, like, when do you mention to people if you end up actually like attaining some level of normalcy, you know, like, yeah, you know, I was actually raised by feral dogs. And in fact, when I was discovered and apprehended by the police, I, I'm proud to say I'd actually become the alpha of the pack. You know, it's hard to know. Um, as somebody with a, a you know an unusual biography, uh, I, I empathize deeply with that that guy and making these decisions about when or ho hopefully maybe he just like got married and he only had to think about it once. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, um, but so yeah, they they talk about. Um, they talk about uh, these, like these three characteristics Linnaeus describes. You know, so uh, quadruped locomotion has generally been present and reported in a vast majority of cases of feral children, and it's occasionally accompanied by extraordinary related jumping skills. Um, so there's like actually there's like a fair number of like um, anatomical changes that occur, like broadening shoulders. Um, you know, uh, like. Uh, enlargement of the great toe, uh, change in the direction of the great toe, uh, uh, slendering and flattening of the pelvis, things like that, um, that occur when, um, when people like walk on all fours their whole lives. Kind of think back to the last episode of the bipedal goat, right? Uh, you know, the skeletal or the ba bipedal baboons, like the skeletal and muscular changes that occur when one walks on two legs, if they're not like previously adapted to that like you know so that's pretty interesting um but it doesn't happen in all cases and so in our um, you know in our scenario of uh such such entities uh being the basis of the or well let's not say being the basis of the sasquatch stories let's just say being sasquatch um you know like that they would have to be like a part of that subset that somehow manages to recover bipedalism or never loses it. Um, but certainly not unthinkable. And um, it's maybe worth noting that in a number of the eyewitness accounts, the, the uh, children, you know, cause often like people talk about encountering Sasquatch children and they are often described as quadruped. And then it's the adults that are more typically <laughs> bipedal. Uh, but so uh, the lack of speech thing is very, very, common and whether it comes back or not it's interesting like the the kids who just are raised in total like isolation um but like indoors somewhere they do the worst right um but then the kids who are raised by other animals ha also have like a lot of trouble 
assimilating to like a normal human behavioral paradigm because they kind of have a behavioral paradigm already that like feels native to them, right? Like it's like they have to unlearn the wolf or unlearn the bear or unlearn the vervet monkey or whatever in order to act like a human. And so the kids who just like, you know, grow up in the treetops or become amphibians or whatever, but who don't, who aren't raised by animals, but do have a rich environment to interact with, uh, those are the kids who tend to do the best as far as like assimilating to some kind of like semi-normal form of humanity or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's well known that um, if uh, speech isn't acquired and, you know, and these kids validate that or like one of the converging pieces of evidence uh, of this, you know, it's like if speech isn't learned within a certain critical developmental window, um, you know, it's not really ever going to be acquired with any real competence. Um, kids, who, kids who fail to acquire language in the critical period will have, like, it's like they can be taught some words and stuff, but it always has this halting, awkward, like, fairly, like, minimally grammatic quality, uh, fairly minimally grammatical quality, that is. Uh, but then body hair, let me read this. Um, they say, although Linnaeus's second characteristic was hirsutus, or hairy, few of the cases that have been described by him or others reported this phenomenon. Only three of the 31 cases cited by Zing, 1940, were reported to have fine hair covering their bodies when found. It can therefore be concluded that this trait is by no means a consistent one for feral children. Okay, yeah, not consistent, but three out of 31 is a whole lot more than, say, like the average of the population of people who grow, you know, who develop under, uh, like what we otherwise would consider to be like species typical developmental conditions, right? You know, like our developmental conditions. So this, this strongly, strongly suggests that, um, that living that living without human contact at at a like really really early time of development uh like switches a different set of developmental switches like flips a different set of developmental switches that makes us more like our ancestral forms right that that makes us covered in hair at least you know a pretty significant amount of the time um, We're from the Crayfish School. Let me try your snake fist then. So what we would be saying with this particular Sasquatch hypothesis is just that, you know, with all these accounts of feral children and all of these, like, unique characteristics that they possess, um that at some point it seems it seems inevitably that it must have been true if we you know if we know so many cases like this that it must have happened from time to time that rather than just like one kid getting isolated um at a relatively early age and fending for themselves in you know some sort of like wild state that more than one kid who were in the same like you know uh, relatively brief developmental window, like very early developmental window, got isolated together and managed to survive, right? And then at some point decided to, you know, do what people do and ended up having children, right? And that 
Sasquatch would be the result of reproductive populations that were founded by feral children, right? By, by uh, specimens of Homo sapiens that didn't grow up um, experiencing the, like, the distinct developmental conditions that facilitated our evolution into what we are and that maintain us in our individual ontogenies in this like uniquely developmentally delayed uh like hyper socially cognitive but also like hyper infantile essentially state like we have the physical characteristics not of juvenile uh, chimpanzees but of fetal chimpanzees right and so we would expect the uh the sort of like developmentally accelerated version of our genome uh, to be to have like a level of strength and physical development that you know with respect to us you know like kind of made us look sort of childish right uh, you know it's it's like a, a commonplace for people to talk about the you know the sort of like unique physical vulnerability of homo sapiens and that's because we, you know, we are able to alter our environments and we, you know, because shelter and clothing and, uh, the use of fire and all that are cross cultural universals of, of the neotenous self domesticated form of humanity. And so we don't need, you know, body hair and, and like a certain level of physical ability that is found in a bunch of other, you know, big, big animals. But, uh, this this would just be what would happen if we uh, if we had a reproductive population that missed out on those developmental cues and became you know the form of our genome that uh, that you know did have to like rely on its own anatomy and physiology to weather the seasons and to like go hunting and all that um, and so this would be a case of a developmental polyphenism. So let's define a developmental polyphenism with the help of the textbook Ecological Developmental Biology uh, from the appendix of which I read in the last episode describing the Cold War ideological conflict that resulted in the loss of you know, the understanding of plasticity from biology. Two main types of phenotypic plasticity are currently recognized, reaction norms and polyphenisms. As mentioned earlier, in a reaction norm, the genome encodes a continuous range of potential phenotypes. In the environment the individual encounters determines the phenotype. One obvious example is muscle hypertrophy in humans. The size of our muscle depends on environmental conditions, how much load it experiences. Those people who exercise have larger muscles, but only within hereditarily defined limits. Reaction norms allow developing organisms to titrate their responses to the strength of a signal. Tadpoles of the wood frog, Rana sylvatica, for instance, respond to the presence of predators by developing deeper tails and shorter bodies. Moreover, the larger the predation risk, as measured by the chemicals secreted by the predators, the deeper the tail and the shorter the body. The second type of phenotypic plasticity, polyphenism, refers to discontinuous either-or phenotypes elicited by the environment. One obvious example is sex determination in turtles, where one range of temperatures induces female development in the embryo, while a different range of temperatures elicits male development. 
Between these two ranges is a small band of temperatures that will produce different proportions of males and females, but these intermediate temperatures do not induce intersexual animals. And then they go on, which is an interesting example, right, um, of how something that West Eberhard brings up repeatedly in developmental plasticity and evolution is that one of the ways to like, uh, uh, you know, one of the conceptual measures one can take to kind of render the, to resolve the nature-nurture dichotomy or to like render it meaningless is to note all of the different ways that a phenotype can take on the same characteristics because of an organism can can have the same traits because of either a genetic or an environmental input, right? Um, and, you know, so obviously sex determination is a, is a great example of that, where in some species that reflects, you know, chromosomes, uh, genes, right? And then in some cases that reflects an environmental condition, the temperature the, uh, the uh, embryo is exposed to. And so uh, in this textbook, Gilbert and Apple give what I think is a pretty interesting example of a polyphenism, which is in... Um, you know, the desert or plague locust, uh, Schistocera uh, gregaria. Um, and so they, they come in these two forms, right? There's the, um, there's like a green plant eating grasshopper that is a solitary, short winged. Um, and then there's like this long winged, brightly colored gregarious form that, you know, engages in this flocking behavior and this migratory behavior and is responsible for, you know, the, the like plague of locust thing that we're, we're familiar with. Um, and they say the phenotypic differences between these two morphs are so striking that only in 1921 did the Russian biologist Boris Usarov finally realize they were the same species. Cues in the environment determine which morphology a young locust will develop. The major stimulus appears to be population density, as measured by the rubbing of legs when locust nymphs get crowded enough that a certain neuron in the hind femur is stimulated by other nymphs, their developmental pattern changes, and the next time they molt, they emerge with long, brightly colored wings, as well as with the gregarious flocking and migratory behaviors. Um, and so they go on to give, uh, you know, a number of examples of polyphenisms and the uh, the developmental switches that induce them, right? So, um, you know, stuff like there's a, a caterpillar that feeds on oak leaves. And if it is feeding on young spring foliage, then it develops a form where it looks like an oak flower, which are present on the trees in spring. You know, a, a catkin, this like brightly colored, elongated flower structure. But if they're eating older leaves, leaves, you know, like... It, closer to the fall, when the the tougher, more more woody leaves, when that are gonna fall off the the branches at some point, they develop a form that makes them look like uh, in a bare oak twig. So you know, so population density, uh, diet, uh, photo you know temperature, which we already examined. Photo period is another one that can induce polyphenisms. You know, so so there's all of these different cues, environmental cues that can induce. Uh, like discontinuous uh, phenotypic variation, right? And so uh, by really what I'm saying when I say that Zena is a polyphenism, a developmental polyphenism of the human genome is just like definitionally right there because she's outside the range of what we would otherwise describe as human variation, right? You know, like 
we, we all we vary in terms of how tall we are. We vary in terms of how strong we are. We vary in terms of how fast we are. You know, we, we vary in terms of like the, <laughs> the margin by which we would lose a race to a horse or the, you know, the degree to which we would have trouble with standing, sleeping outside in the Caucasus Mountains in winter naked. But none of us, you know, can win the race with the horse or actually get through the winter naked. Um, and so, yeah, so she, you know, she's outside the range of, of human variation. So I think here we can see what I'm getting at um, in terms of saying this has everything to do with revolutionary possibility because I think that, you know, I think that programs for total social revolution are pretty, like, preposterous if people aren't going to be truly other than as they are, right? If people aren't going to be fundamentally different. And um, what uh, what developmental polyphenisms tell us, like what the what the presence of a polyphenism tells us, is that that's absolutely possible, right? That um, that the the range that we typically associate, the range of variation we typically associate with humanity, is by no means all that is possible. And um, if developmental conditions are what induce it, you know, then the question becomes, the task of the revolutionary becomes asking what conditions would elicit a truly different form of humanity emerging. Um, and uh, I, I don't think there's any reason, as I, as I hope, that we established last episode, I don't think there's any reason to assume that uh, the only forms of humanity that can emerge are forms of humanity that already existed and had like, you know, millennia of evolution or millions of years of evolution underlying them, right? That, um, that sure, you know, our biological behavioral capacities um, are the result of like fairly specific adaptations, evolutionary adaptations in a lot of cases, but because they can be deployed in, uh, you know, because of their capacity for novel combinatorial and contextual deployments, uh, we can see all of these behaviors, you know, giving the examples of like driving cars or just, you know, any, any of the myriad things we do that exhibit the same kind of functional complexity and integration that we see in traits that are the result of, you know, direct evolutionary adaptations. Um, we, we really just don't, we can't really place any particular limits on the extent of the novelty or the variation that we're capable of. So, yeah, to, to examine a developmental polyphenism of the human genome is to say that the, uh, the continuous range of variation we have thus far observed of our spe in our species is not, you know, does not describe the limits of our species. Or to, you know, to put it more, uh, to put it more, uh, concisely, and perhaps a little more colorfully, if you're going to be like, okay, well, you know, humans just are such that, you know, like, sure, some of us may be more empathetic than others. Some of us may, you know, have a better theory of mind or be less, you know, um, like narrowly self-interested or whatever it is, like less prone to fear responses or whatever. But ultimately, you know, humanity uh, lacks like, a sufficient like capacity for variation to ever 
learn how to sit through a meeting where we decide things together rather than just letting whoever is most capable of exercising violence decide everything for us. I'm going to be like, motherfucker, humans can outrun horses and live in the Caucasus Mountains naked in the winter, right? Like, like we, we, <laughs> we can do a lot of things that we haven't tried out yet, okay? Um, so, yeah, um, we might be cool to um to just kind of examine real quickly um this notion of developmental switches right um to get a sense of like what it is in like between the the sasquatch the zena form of humanity and um what we would otherwise describe as like you know the the cross-cultural record of of and you know the record of variation of humanity and the individual variation within it you know like what like what we would say segregates these two forms of humanity um and you know like what what are the developmental switches so a way to think of develop a way to contextualize developmental switches is to think of development in terms of the overproduction of variation, an initial overproduction. Um, so West Eberhard talks about this in a bunch of different terms. Uh, you know, for instance, she gives the examples of uh, overproduction of mit the mitotic spindle, like structural elements that are used to guide cells during division, and how if the cell encounters an obstruction along its normal path, it can take any number of alternate pathways or, um, you know, certain species like the white-crowned sparrow, the juveniles learn a bunch of different song dialects, only one of which it will actually retain and master as it develops into adulthood based on, you know, the, the dialect that it's actually exposed to and the, you know, the region that, it's, that it uh, resides in, right, stuff like that. So in terms of behavior, trial and error, learning can be thought of as like a form of initial overproduction of variation, just try out a bunch of stuff and then figure out something that actually works and then winnow away the behavioral variation and just do the thing that works. Um, or uh, in terms of um, plant life, there's, you know, there's a phase of exploratory growth where like they're seeking, the plant is seeking the light and it just kind of moves around in every, in every direction. And then at some point settles on a direction where the light seems to be the most concentrated. Um, at the level of behavior in developmental stages, you know, we can see this that a, a lot of species, our own emphatically included, have a phase somewhere in early development where we kind of are just like, is it an experience? I'll take it, you know? And then gradually that kind of, uh, you know, that the, the range of like, compelling experiences is winnowed down and behavior sort of institutionalizes into a functional stable regime <laughs> or hopefully potentially um and then at the in that you know the corollary the neural corollary of that of course is that there's a lot of people seem familiar with this is that there's an initial overproduction of nervous paths right and then um, these are these a bunch of these nervous cells just die at some point leaving the ones that are actually utilized for like the uh, behavior that we become functionally competent in. And so a developmental switch is just, you know, something, uh, you know, it's a, a path that uh, the phenotype can take in response to a genetic or an environmental condition 
uh, to select, you know, from one variant from among a potentially like fairly wide range of them. And so in, um, in this Sasquatch, in the fight like an animal, the official fight like an animal Sasquatch hypothesis, um, you know, the first, the developmental switches that the first generations we're talking about in these populations would have experienced would have been a lack of adult social interaction of any kind, really, right? But then they would, those individuals would have developed such that in subsequent generations, the, uh, the developmental switches that would have retained um, this form that we're hypothesizing the Homo sapiens uh, genotype is capable of producing, um, the relevant developmental switches would have been uh, things like the absence of fire, of language, of the kind of abstract thought and cultural tradition that goes into toolmaking, um, of group living beyond the family level, of, uh, you know, f like the use of shelter and clothing, things like that. And so this kind of gives us the, the impression, you know, it's like we could read any number of thought-provoking essays that ask whether, like, wild and domestic really mean anything at all or these very recent constructs that, you know, some, like, romantic civilized people came up to, you know, imagine um, a mythic past or whatever. But this would kind of indicate that, you know, that when we say that things are wild or domesticated, we, you know, we are intuitively actually responding to something that's very real and very fundamental in the universe. And um, we can think of this because humans are, you know, described as a self-domesticated species because we share a number of morphological and behavioral traits with domestic animals or, you know, like the developmental delay of, a lot of certain traits such as reactive aggression and, you know, in certain like aspects of facial morphology, the, the diminished... Um, the diminished uh, sexual dimorphism, the difference in the appearances between the sexes, things like that, uh, because these are traits we share with domestic animals. It's like we can that we can really think about domestication in this way um, as something you know, like it's so often thought of as something that we're kind of doing to animals that uh, you know, like sort of primarily should be considered in terms of a an extractive or a you know a utilitarian relationship um, that we have with them where we're you know extracting some value from them some you know but but like since we're the ones who went through it first it is kind of interesting to think about the chain one way to think about the Anthropocene or whatever to think about the uh, the both evolutionary and ecological changes that have occurred in the last, you know, millennia, in the last couple million years, is that our species underwent this particular type of evolutionary change. And then we started engaging other animals in the same process of evolutionary change. And now, whereas very recently, um, animals that did not exhibit this syndrome of traits vastly outnumbered those that did. Now, humans and domestic animals represent the vast majority of the animal biomass on the planet, right? Uh, populations of wild vertebrates have 
reduced in number by at least like 75% since the 1970s, you know, and so uh, the, the number of large-bodied vertebrates on this planet has increased by more than an order of magnitude in very recent history, but that's all humans and their domestic animals. So, you know, we can we think of domestication in a kind of like much more fundamental sense as this like massive change that you know, like instead of thinking it in terms of it in terms of like this utilitarian relationship, uh, focused on the extraction of these like few, you know, sort of like commodities that we convert animals into, you know, to think we could think of it as this like far more fundamental sort of like change in the nature of biology, um, and it has two key characteristics. Uh, in terms of like, in terms of like what it means behaviorally, ecologically, and socially. And these are reduced aggression, at least reduced reactive aggression, right? So that's the propensity for like a fear response or like, um, a stress response of some kind, agitation or hostility in, re in relation to other members of the species or indeed just other animals in general, being kind of like in close proximity, intimate interactions, um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, as you know, human history amply demonstrates, that we're not capable of so-called, you know, like proactive aggression um, or like predatory aggression, as it sometimes goes by many names. But you know, a different kind of aggression that's more calculated and utilitarian rather than emotional and sort of based on like a, a like a sort of like. Um, hyperbolic fear response to, you know, like the, the stimulus of other members of the species. Um, and, and then the other characteristic is a reliance on infrastructure of some kind, on some kind of significant environmental manipulation for survival. And so there, you know, there are other species that have affected these changes outside of like the, you know, the human created ecosystem. Um, but they're primarily insects, you know, it's primarily the social insects who um, have like massive, you know, like technological mass societies essentially with other domesticated animals in some uh, cases or domesticated plants and fungi and these vast sort of like uh, networks of, you know, these, these vast like uh, living systems, like these uh, physical structures they inhabit that um, that re they rely on and that require exceptionally like you know coordinated behavior to uh, create and then the only mammal that that does this is the that you know achieves this condition that's called eusociality but we might call it self-domestication or something like that um, is uh, the naked mole rat right and so even among like if we look at the sort of like technological and um, ecological continuum of the neotenous, self-domesticated form of humanity, we always find that these traits are, um, are present, that um, there's always, um, there's always like, you know, a, a true cross-cultural universal is group living and uh, the use of fire and of clothing and of shelter, right? So th these are things that um, even in uh, cultures that we might think of as the most kind of like wild or the least civilized, there there is both, you know, this uh, reduced reactive aggression in the sense of like this greater capacity for social coordination and social cohesion um, and these sort of like large-scale uh, group dynamics. Uh, 
and uh, and you know a reliance on infrastructure. You know, fires, this chemical reaction that isn't always happening in the world, and it's like this very significant environmental modification to always be able to have it, and it requires intensive group coordination, or at least at one point in our evolution, it did to you know maintain that all the time, right before we knew how to make fire. Um, so an interesting example of how this notion is salient um, at, you know, in all uh, human cultures at all times and places ever documented um, is you know, in the, among the sand foragers who are kind of like the paradigmatic uh, you know, hunter-gatherer society, like the most ethnographically famous case of people who you know, are ostensibly outside of the, you know, like not subject to the dynamics of what we might call civilization. So uh, Lee, in his famous 1979 ethnography, The Dobe Chikung, um, talks in his section on settlement patterns. He says, the Chikung word for, I'm not going to try to pronounce any of the cliques. Just be aware that all of these words that aren't in English have some kind of like exclamation mark or apostrophe or forward slash or something that denotes a click that I am just going to straight up ignore. But he says, the Chikung word for village or camp, Chuo, means literally the face of the huts. The Chuo symbolizes for the Chikung the safety, comfort, and companionship of the group. And the term is contrasted in their thought with the term Tasai, meaning bush or wilderness. Chuo is tamed space, cultural space. Tasai is untamed or natural space. And so, I mean, in this case, he's literally talking about a rough circle of grass huts, some 10 to 30 meters in diameter, you know, with like very, very little um, environmental modification with respect to, you know, the rest of the neotenous self-domesticated form of humanity that we typically just call humanity. But, but still, you know, compared to any other species, uh, the presence, the ongoing presence of fire and shelter and these like sort of like uh, long-term, you know, like places of habitation, and, you know, the, the degree of environmental modification and infrastructural reliance that, you know, a fire drill and a bow with poison arrows and all these other things uh, comprises is like very, very, very significantly you know, it's like very significantly contrasting with uh, what would characterize a wild animal or as, you know, we're discussing a wild uh, human animal. Um, and so the, the mechanism of these, uh, these characteristics, this reduced reactive aggression and this reliance on, you know, some kind of like extensive environmental modification that requires, um, you know, that requires this massively coordinated group effort, you know, that <laughs> the reduced reactive aggression facilitates is a developmental delay, which is a type of what's called heterochrony, right? Hetero for difference, crony for timing, which is just one of the primary ways that development can produce uh, evolutionary difference. Um, 
right? You know, changes in developmental timing, it's acceleration, it's, um, it's delay, the omission of developmental stages. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, for instance, there's the famously, here's what West Eberhard says about salamanders in her section on heterochrony, for instance. There is now substantial, even massive evidence that morphological novelties can originate as regulatory novelties. A classic example is the origin of neotenous adults in salamanders, where a hormonally mediated switch blocks metamorphosis but not sexual maturation, producing an adult with larval morphology, but fully developed gonads. So that's an adult with, you know, that's an adult tadpole, a reproductive tadpole. And she says, some phylogenetic transitions parallel developmental changes found within species, an observation that is consistent with the idea that evolutionary change is based on intraspecific developmental change, right? So the developmental variation within a single generation can be sort of like institutionalized as evolutionary change. But the thing is, is that this can happen in both directions and uh, like reversions back and forth can occur if the developmental conditions um, facilitate it. She talks, for instance, about um, how in there's a, a genus of spiders called Stegodyphus um, in which there's a uh, social and non-social forms and um you know in the uh the non-social forms are only non-social as adults but their juveniles um are gregarious they you know they uh, uh um, affiliate with one another and um occasionally these uh these juvenile forms are retained into adulthood right so there's occasional retention of uh the like hypersocial form of the spider throughout its life. And so these, you know, these would be the developmental events that um, sort of became institutionalized as like the characteristic developmental trajectory of the, of the social forms of the species. You know, so there's like, uh, the genus has these, uh, these like periodic, in the non-social forms, these periodic appearances of the, the social form. So we see how like in one generation we can get the developmental change. Um, and you know, these can, these can go in either direction. So it's certainly the case that traits that would appear to have been lost for a long time can come back. It's also true that uh, hypersocial insects will sometimes, when developmental conditions are right, West Eberhard talks about how we'll see a solitary form of what we characterize as a social, you know, a social insect emerge, right? And so that would be when the develop, a developmental acceleration occurs in a species that's characteristically developmentally delayed. Um, she says, talking about the, the deletion of traits, deletion sets the stage for reversion, the reappearance during evolution of traits lost earlier in the evolution of a lineage. Reversion can also refer to a return to an ancestral phenotypic state, as when a lineage of multicellular organisms gives rise to a lineage of unicellular ones, even though the single cell that results may not closely resemble the ancestral single cell. Deletion can occur due to changes in regulation that are small relative to their phenotypic effects. So some deleted traits may be subject to atavistic recall and reversion with little environmental or genetic change. And so she gives some, some examples of atavisms like, you know, the emergence of teeth that have been gone for, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of years in, say, like whales and in lynx. Or in, uh, one that I thought was particularly interesting was, uh, you know, in horses, the, the terminus of the limb, you know, the, where the, uh, the homologs of what in humans are fingers used to be in the ancestral forms of that species, um, they've all fused, right, into a single hoof. But sometimes the, the hoof actually, you know, like digits reappear. There's like multiple like hoofed digits in horses that sometimes show up. So, th so things like that. So an ancestral trait can show up after a very long time. And we don't necessarily, uh, like, we won't necessarily expect to see any evidence that, you know, these are latent capacities. This illustrates more broadly this point that organisms contain latent capacities, unexpressed phenotypes within them. She says, uh, reversions are evidence that materials of inheritance, or more accurately, the capacity to produce certain phenotypes can remain latent and be transmitted between generations without a particular visual, visible effect. Um, and also just talking about how, uh, like, you know, how long this can go on for. She says, the widespread occurrence of viable atavisms and reversions shows that phenotypic and regulatory integration are not immediately lost. Even though the expression of a particular phenotype or gene combination is suspended, sometimes for millions of years. And it cannot be overemphasized that the capacity to re-express a lost phenotype does not depend on preservation of a particular intact ancestral set of genes. Rather, it depends on the preservation of a capacity to develop a particular phenotype whose developmental pathways may vary in their details and show the interchangeability of environmental and polygenic factors that is typical of complex phenotypic regulation. So, you know, that's all to say that it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be that there's like the actual gene sequence of, you know, if, if the Sasquatch form of humanity was characteristic of, you know, a more ancestral form, you know, it's, it's what we would be if we weren't developmentally delayed, right? But that doesn't mean that that ever, that anywhere in evolutionary history, we actually looked exactly like we look now without developmental delay if that makes sense, right? And uh, it's not, it doesn't require that some gene, ancestral gene sequence, nuclear DNA sequence, be recapitulated. It requires, you know, just the phenotypic plasticity and the developmental conditions to produce the sort of like developmentally accelerated form. And that this is something that does happen in, you know, species like amphibians and insects. Um, you know, th this is not, we're not positing something that uh, isn't widely attested among a range of taxa. And uh, we're, we're just positing that something we see in other species also happens in humans. So another, another way to think about this, like the more extraordinary form of this statement is, you know, like maybe Sasquatch is a developmental polyphenism of humans. But the more, the more sort of like conservative sounding way to approach this is to say, um, well, okay, you know, if a lot of species are subject to uh, developmental variation that in, um, induces like developmental acceleration or developmental delay, is it like pretty reasonable considering how profoundly developmentally delayed humans are, considering that we don't resemble juvenile chimpanzees, we resemble fetal chimpanzees in terms of our facial features and whatnot. Is it pretty reasonable to expect that some set of developmental conditions 
could accelerate that process and undo that delay. And then, you know, in terms of the feral children aspect of this hypothesis, again, you know, it may sound crazy from a certain perspective, but considering how many cases of this there are, it might start to sound pretty reasonable to verging on inevitable if we just say, well, considering how often it does happen that some child ends up surviving in the wild without adult human intervention, it doesn't it seem like it must have happened once or twice that more than one child did that together and that they ended up reproducing? And were that the case, what would we expect that population to end up looking like? And if we use the only other mammalian instance of self-domestication as a guide, we would definitely expect that hair would come back. So the, the one other species of mammal that is, you know, eusocial, you know, that develop, uh, exhibits the degree of hypersociality that humans do um, is the naked mole rat, so-called for its lack of hair. I found this great description of naked mole rats that I just absolutely thought I had to read um, in uh, Sarah Hurdy's Mothers and Others, The Evolutionary Origins of Mutual Understanding. She says, Looking more like a bad dream than a mammal, naked mole rats with their hairless, wrinkled hides and protruding teeth adapted for tunneling through desert hardpan come closer than any mammal known to the skewed reproductive success characteristic of eusocial insects. Fewer than 5% of mole rats ever have an opportunity to breed. Females who manage to dominate other group members and achieve breeding status undergo massive morphological changes, including lengthening of the lumbar vertebrae, permitting the queen to produce large litters. Even more remarkably, male and female mole rats who achieve breeding status develop significantly more brain cells than subordinates, especially in the hypothalamus. Differences in brain morphology between breeding and non-breeding females are more pronounced than any difference between the sexes. And yeah, so this this is the caption of a photograph and you can see the um, you know this striking similarity between mole rats and the eusocial insects with all their different castes you know that have the like distinct uh, morphological differences right you know where you have some with like the massively enlarged uh, like mouth parts for fighting or whatever and some that are winged and some that are wingless and then you have these enormous queens you know, who do the reproduction and are fed by the entire colony. And it's pretty similar. I mean, uh, look up a photo of, of naked mole rat, you know, of naked mole rats sometimes. And yeah, the, the reproducing females are like far, far bigger than any of the other, you know, than any of the other animals. And it really does look pretty freaky. It's, it's got, I don't know, it's got a vibe. It, it feels a way. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, you know, these are, these are the only other, um, the only other like mammal that engages in the, like the level of sort of like hyper sociality, you know, the intense social coordination required to, um, maintain some kind of like very costly infrastructure required for group survival that, that humans do. And, you know, they share in common with humans this, this hairlessness, this product of developmental delay that produces this greater social tolerance and therefore this greater capacity for, um, you know, social coordination. So, um, yeah, so we, you know, we would expect, uh, we would expect uh, the, the developmentally accelerated form of the Homo sapiens genome to be hairy, just like all the eyewitness accounts say. And, you know, we, we can name a few other, um, 
We can name a few other uh, sort of like characteristics that we might expect um, would be, you know, would like induce a, a, a few other like characteristics of the environment and the developmental uh, context, you know, a few other switches that we would think would induce this form of humanity. So, uh, for instance, like we would probably expect, um, because as, uh, as, uh, humanity evolves, our 2D, 4D digit ratio decreases. So that's the ratio of the length between the finger you point with and the finger you put a ring on if you do something like get married, right? Um, and that there is a more and more pronounced difference the more um, one is androgenized in utero, the more that um, in the mother's uh, womb there are um, you know, androgens like testosterone circulating, um, and this also accounts for a bunch of the uh, the physical differences. You know, people vary a lot in this regard. And it's like it's one reason that some men can look all like gorilla-ish and some can't, you know, um, or, or have a much harder time doing so. And so, um, you know, uh, other primates are like they look like bodybuilders compared to us, like our close relatives, like gorillas and chimpanzees. You know, they look fucking ripped compared to the human baseline and um and our ancestors were massively androgenized compared to us they had much uh, much greater 2d 4d digit ratios and um they um you know had like intent like presumably had like much more pronounced musculature as a result and so um that's like a you know, that's something that's thought to underlie, for instance, in the farm fox experiments that we've talked about, something that's thought to underlie um, the sort of like rapid uh, change towards a more domesticated form in domestication experiments, as, as with the silver foxes in Russia, is, you know, they select this initially more like docile uh, less reactively aggressive uh, subset of the population, but then they, you know, they give them these conditions where there's nothing particularly stressful, like no particular need for aggression occurring, and the the mothers uh, are bathing their um, their offspring in less uh, less androgens in utero, and so one of the one of the developmental changes that uh, that produced, you know, like greater and greater. Um, pro-social tendencies and less and less reactive fear. Uh, likewise, I think we, you know, we could probably expect that, um, you, you know, like maybe, maybe pregnancy is, takes about the same amount of time, but we would, we would start to expect that, uh, you know, true to, uh, the, the, very terminology of like developmental acceleration, like we would not only expect to see like a different form of the of our species emerging, but we would expect it to take a different time. We would expect adulthood to happen faster. Um, humans are utterly unique in that you know life history theory deals with you know the timing of of developmental events, right? And like you know how much energy should be expected to be allocated to, you know, offspring or to growing to the point where offspring are produced or thing, things like this. And um, we violate the expectations, uh, you know, for we, um, we have a, a shorter interbirth interval than any of closely related primate, but we take longer to mature. So, you know, like, there's more work to be done in terms of raising any one of us 
even though um, we have babies faster. And that's because we live in, in big groups. That's because we're cooperative breeders, right? Um, and that is the single most predictive factor of brain size in uh, cross-species analysis. I think not even just in primates, although certainly, certainly in primates, but um, yeah, yeah. So the time to maturity is the best predictor of, of uh, brain to body ratio in a bunch of different species, right? So that, that time that we spend developing, that time that we spend young and helpless, um, allows our brains to develop uh, into the, uh, you know, very, very uh, atypical monstrosities that they are. And so we would expect the developmentally accelerated version of the Homo sapiens genome to be developmentally accelerated. We'd expect everything to happen faster. Um, uh, quoting again from Mothers and Others, life history theory is the branch of evolutionary biology devoted to questions such as how big should an organism grow to be? What size babies should it produce? How much time and energy should an animal spend on growing before starting to breed? And then how often should it breed? And so forth. One widely accepted tenet of life history theory is that across species, those with bigger babies relative to the mother's body size will also tend to exhibit longer intervals between births because the more babies cost the mother to produce, the longer she will need to recoup before reproducing again. Yet humans, like marmosets, provide a paradoxical exception to this rule. Humans, who of all the apes produce the largest, slowest maturing, and most costly babies, also breed the fastest. And marmosets are another example of a, a cooperatively breeding uh, species. And we share a number of other traits with them. They're pretty interesting. Uh, uh, Sarah Hurdy, in a, another article in um, a, a book called Hunter-Gatherer Childhoods, Evolutionary, Developmental, and Cultural Conditions, uh, something something about evolution and development and culture that I'm, I'm forgetting but she talks she talks about this how uh, babbling is widely assumed to be um, you know like a, a neuroanatomical um, sort of like developmental um, uh, you know uh, condition for the development of the capacity for language but that actually we share this with other cooperatively breeding uh, uh, primates who don't develop language, right? But what we have in common with them is that babies essentially have to figure out how to be really charming, how to get people other than their mothers to take care of them at least a significant amount of the time. And that, you know, babbling is just one of the ways that we apparently get people to be like, oh, the baby, though, breaking my heart with its cuteness. I want to pick it up. I want to give it food. You know, I want to take care of it. Sure, I'll take it while you go off and do something else, Mom. Um, yeah, so, you know, I guess maybe we could say Sasquatch babies don't necessarily babble. Um, and so, you know, we could expect that uh, the time, the, the accelerated time of development, um, you know, would produce like a smaller brain probably. Um, and, and we could also assume that any number of experiential differences um, – would uh, would produce like differences in brain structure. I mean, I think we we could assume that uh, uh, gene expression differences would be happening even in utero. That would produce like very significant differences in brain structure. But but then at the level of um, right, and this is there's this great quote um, in. Uh, 
West Eberhard talking about, um, I think she's, qu- she's quoting somebody else, but to, to give some uh, sense of how radical the differences in gene expression um, in utero could, could be, she quotes somebody talking about, um, talking about gene expression saying, if I could control the time of gene action, I could cause a fertilized snail egg to develop into an elephant. Their biochemistries are not all that different. It's simply a matter of timing, right? You know, so we could expect a bunch of uh, structural differences based on uh, gene expression differences in utero, but then also like things like we know that literacy, for instance, uh, radically alters brain structure, but probably on some level, the, the kinds of things that um, are more cross-culturally universal, things like making tools and, you know, just like creating like schematics of the world in some fashion or another, whether like in mythology or in, you know, uh, linguistic references to like places that we might go hunting tomorrow or whatever um you know like when the when these tendencies are missing we we would probably expect uh significant structural differences to to result um there's this interesting um interesting study that's been done on i think the way it's pronounced is like tismane or something but these uh this uh uh, indigenous group in uh bolivia that um, where this kind of natural experiment occurred where um, schools were uh, cr- pr- uh, built in some villages but not in others. And so you have this this population, you know, it's like people are always you know, see, such a fraught issue to talk about population differences and IQ scores, right? But this is uh, just such significant evidence for all of that being a function of developmental plasticity under different environmental conditions because, you know, this is a very, like, demographically, culturally, genetically, like, homogenous population where the, like, the difference that they're, they're measuring, you know, the, the big difference is just, like, whether a school was built in a village or not. Um, and, you know, so they give these IQ tests that are, um, it's the Ravens, I forget, it's, but it's something purely spatial. It doesn't involve, there's not even like, a, there's not a linguistic component at all. People, um, you know, can like give the test without like communicating verbally much at all, where it's just these like spatial puzzles. Um, and there's very significant age effects on performance, you know, the, the, this whole premise with IQ tests is that they're supposedly testing this truly general cognitive ability. Yeah, it has nothing to do with how many books you've read or how much math you learned. It's just like supposedly something like this truly innate capacity and what that could possibly mean. I've never understood. Uh, but... <laughs> You know, like it's always seemed trivially obvious to me that whatever the test is, as long as it involves manipulating abstract symbols on like a two-dimensional surface, like some paper with a pen or something, the more time you've spent doing that, regardless of like what other cognitive domains are involved, like, right, like regardless of whether that was like a linguistic affair or whether like even like whether you're just literally like drawing a lot or like, you know, solving some kind of puzzle or doing a bunch of math, like it, it must translate, it must translate into greater competencies in, you know, any kind of test that you could develop that has that characteristic in common, where it's like, let's manipulate some two-dimensional symbols, you know, like abstract representations of something or other. And sure enough, you know, in this, in this population, there's a, a significant age effect in performance 
on these uh, IQ tests um, in the uh, the villages with schools, right? Kids get better and better at figuring out these puzzles that supposedly test some truly like uh, completely intrinsic, like non-environmentally mediated cognitive capacity or other. And then there's no age effect. Kids just don't get better in the villages without a school. So the, we, we have to assume that humans, um, for all of our massive cross-cultural variation, have some level of abstraction going on, you know, mental representations of the tools they put together and th things like that, you know, the fires and the shelters they build, the, the maps of the world that they employ, um, you know, the, the symbolic, like the sort of like schema they use to imagine, say, I don't know, the, the migratory paths of animals and stuff like that when they have conversations about stuff like that. And if one had no language and none of these sort of like, none of these like, uh, uh, these physical undertakings like tool or shelter making that require these abstract mental schematics, I imagine that brain structure would also be very different as a result of that. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that, that, that's pretty, that, that would be what I would want to do if we, if I could interact with <clears throat> the, the developmentally accelerated or Sasquatch form of humanity is I would just want to see like how information was processed and like wh where the differences were. Because I also imagine just like, you know, sand foragers aren't subject to optical illusions that people in, um, in more like uh, technologically intensive cultural uh, environments are, you know, because they've been exposed to a bunch of 90 degree angles. I would also imagine that this form, this form of the human genome has certain like competencies that the rest of us don't possess. I actually think some of them might be pretty interesting. I, I hesitate to mention it. It's, uh, you know, it's probably the farthest I'll tread into this, this sort of territory in this episode, but there are a ton of people who claim, I shouldn't even say this, but there are a ton of people who claim that in their encounters with Sasquatch, they felt like they were being <laughs> communicated with, you know, non-verbally, like just like through some purely mental, uh, whatever. And like, I don't know. I am, I am somebody who has had too many experiences with things like that to feel like that's like a fringe. I, I just do feel like people are able, I mean, we don't really understand what consciousness is. I don't understand why we can place limits on exactly how it functions with any real confidence. And I've just had too many experiences where it does seem like there's aspects of consciousness uh, that, you know, like it communicates with other consciousnesses or just with the world at large in ways we don't totally understand. And like, I guess I kind of would actually expect a non-linguistic form of humanity to maybe be sort of better at stuff like that. But I, I, I don't know. Let's, Anyway, you know, the, the, the hunter horticulturalists and the IQ test. Let's, let's just remember that that's where this started. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, those are some, another, oh, another interesting one that's worth mentioning is, uh, is fire, right? So that, that would produce some very significant phenotypic differences, a lack of fire. Um, you know, in his book, Catching Fire, is that what it's called? How Cooking Made Us Human, uh, Richard Rangham um, talks about how he looked around for cases of, you know, like how people basically seem to be sort of like physiologically dependent on cooking. Like raw foods, people have like a lot of trouble gaining any real weight. And he couldn't really find much, um, 
cases of people like living wild, like people who got like, you know, stranded after some plane crash or, you know, like uh, shipwreck or whatever, surviving all that long without being able to cook. Although like in the cases that he could find were actually shorter than the cases of many feral children. So, uh, but the, again, that, that would probably indicate that there's still some developmental plasticity that early on in development that that you know allows them to assimilate to a diet without cooked food. Cooked food is universally beneficial to you know. So this is another good example of like cross species phenotypic plasticity, um, and how we can't necessarily assume something can't happen just because evolution didn't experience it for millions of years or whatever. Um, like species in general gain more weight eating cooked food than raw food, right? It's just like easier to digest. You just can extract more nutrients from it. Um, and so, you know, that's true of like, for instance, all domestic animals. Um, and so it, it was probably like a very significant benefit to humans right away when they started eating cooked food, uh, probably is one of the things that allowed us to develop such expensive neural tissue and you know one of the things that created the social forms we inhabit right because before we could make there must have been some significant period where we used fire but couldn't make it and so somebody had to just kind of like guard the fire tend the fire so that would have like militated strongly toward a division of labor toward the kind of hyper sociality that you know we associate with naked mole rats and certain types of insects and stuff you know um, that we associate with the type of biology, you know, developmental delay and reduced reactive aggression that we associate with humanity. Um, but yeah, you know, so, um, so if, uh, feral children can do it longer than anybody Ringham could find in, uh, in his case studies of people who like shipwrecked or got lost in the wilderness or whatever, um, then, yeah, presumably, like, uh, this is another aspect of the human genome that is developmentally plastic and, uh, you, the, the Sasquatch form, uh, just, you know, doesn't need fire to, to subsist. And, you know, we see lots of big, strong animals that, that don't, um, that don't need fire, uh, don't need cooking, cooked food to get like that. But humans, the, the neotenous self-domesticated form of humanity really does, you know, there's, there's very hard limits on, on the kind of muscular physique you can develop if you're just eating raw food. So yeah, that, that's a pretty interesting difference. Let me try your snake fist then. So yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe a decent place. There's, this is one of those cases where I just accumulated a, a massive panoply of notes, and I guess I could keep going for quite a while, but I, I think maybe that's as good a place as any to kind of stop. And hopefully, at this point, I've illustrated the you know the fundamental intention was to illustrate a plasticity to humanity that maybe wasn't as abundantly clear before, right? To push back on this notion that um, if humanity behaves a certain way, we, you know, if we've gotten, if we've disabused ourselves of the notion that there's no such thing as human nature and we're starting to, you know, be traumatized by the reality, the social, political, and ecological realities we inhabit and start to, like, um, get the impression that there's very much such a thing as human nature and that it is in fact awful, you know, and that 
what what that means is that G, you know we have some set of genes that constrain us to some like very narrow range of behavioral and perceptual potentials. Like what I've hopefully convinced you of is that that's really not true, right? That that there's a, a degree a degree of plasticity within humanity that implies a radical range of possibilities. And I and I chose this Sasquatch example, you know, because it's like discontinuous with the range of variation we normally observe to, to you know, really try to illustrate that we just don't have any meaningful way to place limits um, a priori on what people potentially could be like, right? And that developmental conditions make us as we are. And that, you know, for as much as the type of social sciences that says humans are infinitely malleable and there's no such thing as biology is not simply wrong, but doesn't make any goddamn sense. For us to be infinitely malleable, we must have a biology. But, um, but that if one is willing to actually, like, begin to learn about how variable behavior is produced, about the biological potentials for behavior, that it does look very much like people have a, a capacity for variation that we really can't place any particular, like, you know, a priori limits on at all. And um, I, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's a characteristic of traumatic situations that they start to seem like they are more, that they reflect something more intrinsic about the universe than they do, right? That, you know, when, when something terrible happens, especially if it happens over and over again, we start to get the impression that that terrible condition or dynamic or event just kind of is etched into the very structure of the universe. Um, and uh, I think that we are in this, we are witnessing such profoundly traumatic events in the human social and ecological trajectory that it's very, very, very hard not to like come to that conclusion, to, to get some version of that impression. Um, that there's just something really intrinsic about the situation that we're in. And um, I don't, like, the, the only place that this, that that would live would be in the biology of our species. And I just really don't actually think it's there. So think of Zena and, and think of how, you know, when you're despairing of the human condition, think of how many developmental not how many developmentally novel conditions we could potentially subject ourselves to and how just truly unknown the behavioral and perceptual horizons that would emerge as a result actually are and don't be afraid to imagine a version of humanity that is as different from what we think of when we think of humanity today as Zena is from what we think of when we think of humanity today, but that is different in the ways that you would like to see, that you would like to imagine uh, working to create the conditions for, and, and perhaps to think of that as the task of a revolutionary. As I said in the last episode, not to create a different politics for a species with, a, you know, with an ostensibly fixed biology, but to guide the very course of evolution itself. Who have no technique? Who have no technique? Who have no technique? Who have no technique? Who have no technique?
Phase 